Thanks for tuning in. I'm Elise Mullen, host of this week's episode of Bookmarked and Dog Ear, a podcast about writing and creativity. Today, we're sitting down with Arielle Felton. Arielle is a SCAD grad who earned her MFA in writing in 2015. Recently, she's had her writing featured in The New Yorker and The Washington Post. I hope you enjoy. So this piece is titled, To the Lady Who Shared 13 Pictures of Black Babies and White Babies Holding Hands on My Facebook Wall. It's published in the New Yorkers in their Daily Shouts column. Oh, hey, I remember you. We met at that neighborhood association meeting last year. You called me girlfriend a lot, and then later you sent me a friend request along with a message about getting lunch. I am so sorry I never responded to that, by the way. Things have just been so crazy. I know you're probably busy, so I'll make this quick. I'm writing to say thank you for the thoughtful post on my Facebook page today. With just a few words and 13 photos of black babies and white babies holding hands, you've helped me understand race in a way that I, a black woman, have never understood it before. Yesterday, when I shared a post that read, ask yourself if the white people in your life are allies or part of the problem, I'll admit that I initially considered turning off the comments. As you've no doubt noticed, tense arguments about racism and police brutality are popping up all over social media this month, and people are losing friends both on Facebook and IRL. I worried that problem-solving dialogue couldn't happen on the internet, but you've proved me wrong. Your first comment was, try not to use words like white, because racism hurts all people. Usually unsolicited advice rubs me the wrong way, but I knew you had good intentions because you added a smiley face emoji. That small yellow face told me that finally I'd found someone willing to have the tough discussions in a civil manner. I took a deep breath, clicked reply, and prepared myself to discuss the centuries long oppression of my people with you, my newfound confidant. But before I could finish typing, another notification. This time you'd shared something directly to my page. When I click the link to find 13 photos of black babies and white babies holding hands, I swear to you, I actually gasped. You see, my friend, I've had it all wrong. First of all, I didn't even know that black babies and white babies could hold hands. I assumed that racism was in their DNA from the moment of conception, making their tiny palms repel like matching poles on two magnets. Now, a more stubborn person might say that these images were photoshopped, but I've never been one to argue with conclusive evidence. You even took the time to add the caption, racism is taught, a profound idea that will forever alter the way I think about and discuss both racism and babies. Really, I can't thank you enough. Here I was relying on my own lived experiences in order to interpret race relations when you had actual proof. P.S. You might notice that now no one can leave comments on my Facebook page, but that is simply because I feel there is nothing left to add. Together, you and I have figured this out. This piece is called A Letter to My Niece, and it was published in the Progressive Magazine in February of 2019. Dear Thalia, I've been thinking about you a lot lately. Not you as you are now, but as you were when you were born. For nine months, everyone in the house was on edge ever since your mother, my sister, announced she was pregnant at age 19. 
Your granny was disappointed, but tried to make the most out of the situation. She spent a lot of time shopping for baby clothes and parenting magazines. Your granddaddy, as you've no doubt come to learn, is quiet when he's angry and mostly spent his time shaking his head. I was only nine years old and I just tried to stay out of everybody's way. Your birth was a welcome release of tension as if all had been forgiven. Everyone cooed over you with your big eyes and bright skin. We gave you your mother's old nickname, Squirrel. We dressed you up in that same yellow ruffled baby dress your mother and I had worn years before and got professional pictures taken. Now you can only tell our three baby photos apart because you were drooling so much in yours. I know we joke about you stealing all the attention away from me, but the truth is the house felt happy and full during those years that we all still lived together. I've been thinking about that baby a lot. You were quick to laugh and fascinated by everything you saw. We all used to wonder aloud what you'd be like as you got older. As a baby, you knew nothing of the definitions the world was going to press onto you later in life. Black, female, Southern. Nobody was yet telling you who to be like, who not to end up like. The world had not yet told you who you were, who you could or should be. You just were. I was seven years old when the world first told me who I was. I had a crush on a white boy in my class with blue eyes and way too much hair. Every day on the bus ride home, we would duck down low beneath the seats and sneak kisses back and forth. One day, his older brother caught us in the act, laughed, screamed, I can't wait to tell mom and dad that you were kissing a nigger. It wasn't my first time hearing that word, but the version my family spoke ended with an A. I almost told him he'd pronounced it wrong. This is my first time hearing it said like that, like it was a dirty word difficult for him to even hold in his mouth, and he'd used it to describe me. I think I've been running from that moment and that word my whole life. A nigger isn't smart, so I became type A obsessive over my grades and accomplishments. A nigger's hair is kinky, so I sobbed every day until your granny finally relented and let me perm my hair. A nigger spoke a certain way, so I sounded like I was raised by the Brady Bunch. This is hard for me to admit to you and to myself, but my opinions of black people, including your mother, followed this behavior. Growing up, your mother was a lot like she is now, aggressively confident and headstrong. To her credit, I don't think your mother ever believed the story the world tried to tell her about herself. She wasn't naive. She just learned early on that because she was black and a girl, the world would never give her her due. This injustice caused your mother to love herself even harder and louder and place all of her faith in herself. I responded to the world's view of me by apologizing and trying to correct what I saw as mistakes in myself. Your mother responded by being fully herself and daring the world to say something about it. The world, however, only saw a smart mouth on a black girl and your mother was in trouble often, whether at home or at school. Even before she was pregnant with you, my sister was presented to me as a bad example. Your granny even told me, don't be like your sister. And when I got to high school, I would hear some version of this over and over again from teachers when they recognized my last name on the roll. Each time I felt an odd combination of fear for my sister and pride in myself. I wanted my sister to act right like I did. I thought her life would be easier if she just changed how she behaved. Maybe if she turned her music down, she wouldn't get pulled over. Maybe if she ignored her classmates' taunts, she wouldn't always be in detention. I wanted her to change how she responded to the world, to stop talking back and to quiet her attitude. When your mother announced that she was pregnant, I thought of you as another confining definition she'd have to bear. 
In addition to being a black woman, now she was also a single teenage mother, three strikes. I didn't realize how poisonous this thinking is. I just wanted to fit in after all, I was going to a predominantly white school and living in a predominantly white neighborhood. But now I know because I didn't want myself or anyone I love to be associated with that word ever again. I judged us against someone else's definition of what was right. The crazy thing is it almost worked. You've heard both black people and white people say it to me before. Why are you so white? Are you the whitest black girl I know? It's funny that what black people say is an insult or in jest, white people mean as a compliment. Once a friend's mother called me one of the good ones, I felt a separation growing between myself and other black people, but there was, and maybe there always will be, a limit to how far I could go. What I've learned is perhaps something your mother already knew. You could only be a token in their space for so long before someone reminds you of that dirty word and your place within it even if you do everything right. Even if you use your blinker and follow every traffic law, a cop will pull you over and ask where a girl like you got a car like this. Do you remember that red convertible I had? Even if you sound like a white girl over the phone, you might not get the job after the in-person interview. Even if you're a childless A-plus college student with two jobs, your white boyfriend's parents will say he can do better. It was a hard lesson to learn and I had to run face first into that limit several times before I understood it. It hit me again recently when Botham Jean, a 26-year-old Black man, was killed in his Dallas apartment by off-duty police officer Amber Geiger, who claimed the whole thing was a misunderstanding. In the days that followed, I watched as the news released facts about Botham. At first, it seemed as if he'd done everything right. I read that he was a college graduate, an accountant, and active in his church. When he was shot, he wasn't driving with his music blasting loudly or talking back to anyone. He was inside his own apartment on a Thursday evening after work, maybe sitting on the couch, maybe fixing himself dinner. Just like I was holding up accomplishments and certain behaviors to prove my own worth, newspapers rolled out these details as proof that he was one of the good ones, was not a threat, and did not deserve what happened to him. Then, a few days later, the story changed. He'd run into that limit, the final rung of the ladder were not allowed to grasp. Now, police said they needed to search his apartment. They found, aha, a small amount of marijuana. And why, they asked, did he respond to the, didn't, sorry. And why, they asked, didn't he respond to the officer's verbal commands? In a matter of days, Botham went from being an educated and hardworking man at home after a long day of work to being a black man who got high and didn't listen. Three strikes. While Officer Geiger has been charged with murder, rare for a police shooting, you know Botham isn't a lone example. You know about Trayvon Martin and Laquan McDonald and Sandra Bland and Tamir Rice. You saw how the world reduced these people to their final moments more than anything that came before. Why did she talk back? Why did he run? It didn't matter that Trayvon called his mom cupcake or that Laquan worked at a youth advocate program after school or that Sandra had an agriculture degree. It didn't matter that Tamir was 12. In the end, when it mattered, they could only go so far. You were only nine when I left for college, so I missed a lot of your preteen and teenage milestones. I don't know who your first kiss was with or when you first had the word nigger thrown at you like a slap in the face. Some people will say, well, maybe that's never happened to her, but I know better. Each time I returned home for a visit, you seem more fully realized, like I was pressing fast forward on a video of your life. 
all of a sudden when I came home for the holidays, you were painting your nails, wearing a bra and joining the track team. You weren't squirrel anymore, the kid with big front teeth and plaited ponytails. You were Thalia, popular in school, but struggling in math. You rolled your eyes at everything your mom said, not realizing how much you reminded everyone of her at that age. Do you remember the night you ran away from home? I think you were 15 or 16. I wasn't there, but your granny called and told me how you ran out of the house barefoot in the middle of an argument with your mother, and I was struck. I wasn't worried about your safety. We're either related to or know everybody in that little town, and I even heard that your cousin Kelsey chased you until his bad knee gave out. I wasn't even surprised that you and your mother had gotten into an argument. You two are exactly alike, headstrong and proud. She'd probably threaten you with a whooping, I'm sure of it. No, it was the helplessness of that running that got to me, the pointlessness of it. Where did you imagine yourself going? What place was going to be better than the comfort of your own home, your mother, your family? Growing up, Granny used to tell me that you were always watching, always looking up to me, but it was you who taught me something. You showed me that if there's one place in the world for us, one place for all those dirty words and narrow definitions can be discarded and we can be ourselves without judgment or fear, it is from whence we came. If you were looking to me all those years, Thalia, I hope you learned what not to do. That girl was fundamentally insecure, looking to others to confirm her worth and trying to escape the truth like someone running away barefoot. I spent so many years of my life trying desperately to prove I wasn't whatever that dirty word meant. In the process, I missed out on knowing myself. It is only recently that I've stopped running I eventually tired of having to balance the different versions of myself. It's difficult to maintain a superiority complex and an inferiority complex all at once, to view oneself in two completely different lights and to constantly question which one you're supposed to be, which one is worthier of love or life. I had to ask myself, if I can do everything right and still be a nigger or worse, a dead nigger, then why spend so much time trying to fit this narrow definition? If my middle-class upbringing, my formal education, and the way I present myself to the world don't matter, then what does? As colossal as that question sounds, the answer was freeing. The answer brought me back to you, back to that baby born on a clear December day in 1999. I realized that I still carried within me the same clean slate I once envied you for. I could shed these layers, return to the start, and underneath, perhaps, there was someone that you could look up to. Now I'm working to create a definition of myself that is real and mine. I want an expansive and personal definition, one that includes the way I overly pronounce my consonants when I speak and how talking to you and the rest of your, our family brings out my country accent. A definition that makes room for my inability to leave the house without coconut oil in my purse or watch you got mail without crying. One that includes my equal obsessions with Joan Didion and Plies. The, goal I the goals I chase now are for me, not for someone else's approval. I'm not asking who I should be to make others happy or at least comfortable in my skin. I just am. This means I'm also constantly removing the filters the world gave me for viewing others and I'll admit that I'm not always good at it. Another confession. I was disappointed in you when your mother first told me you were pregnant at 17. Three hours away in my own apartment, I rolled out of bed, placed my feet on the floor and sat there in the dark for what felt like a long time. Conflicted feelings warred inside of me. Now that I'm older, I know teenage pregnancy isn't the end of the world, even if you are a black girl from the South. I watched your mother finish, 
finish college twice, get married, buy a house, and raise two smart and kind children, I knew that one experience did not define her and it should not define you. But at the same time, I recalled how your mother was treated, how society's disdain for her only deepened after you'd arrived. I cringed at the thought of anyone seeing you like that and I almost fell back into old habits. Why wasn't she more careful? Didn't she know what people would think? Why didn't she act right? And then I stopped myself short. There are 10 years between your mother and me and nearly 10 years between you and I. Now we are 38, 28, and 19 years old. Each of us has struggled with how to live as a black woman in this world, in this world that has set limits on who we can be. I don't know what insights your mother has shared with you on the topic, but for my part, I want you to understand this. You have nothing to run away from. It doesn't matter what labels the world gives you as long as you do the defining. Only you can decide how you're going to move through this world, what you hold dear, and what parts of yourself you find pride in. Try to forgive those of us in the family who have helped press these definitions onto you. Backwards as it must seem, it comes from love and from an understanding that the world wants to, wants to deny you your humanity. Forgive me, Thalia, as I learn that this world must adjust to you and not the other way around. Okay, the end. <laughs> wow, that's so powerful. Thank you so oh, much for sharing that. Thank you. Sorry it was so long. I said it was oh, long. No, no. It was like, oh, it really is lengthy. Oh, no, no, I love to hear it. Thank you. Have you always known that you wanted to be a writer? When did that start? Um, I think I always had a love for books. I think that came first. Um, growing up, no one talked about writing as like a thing that you could do you know even though I was like absorbing all of these books and I was so into reading it was like there weren't any writers in my life I think it probably wasn't until like my senior year of high school I took a yearbook class and I got to write a lot in that class that I realized like oh this is like this is a career this is a real thing <laughs> that maybe I could be good at um, so it took a while <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so like I think everyone I talk to in the creative industry has that same moment of like oh I never thought that I could actually pursue a career based right. off a hobby but I can't <laughs> <laughs> you don't meet uh you don't meet too many writers growing up in small towns I guess <laughs> sure, sure. so you were recently published in the New Yorker can you talk about that experience and what it was like um yeah so uh the, the story that I like to tell about this starts with a lot of rejections from the New Yorker because <laughs> I just want it to be as real as possible I had been working on my humor voice for a while. Um, and I'd published uh, a list, like a funny listicle at McSweeney's. And I was really excited, you know, it's McSweeney's. Mm -hmm. And then I, that same day, I got an email from one of the cartoonists in the New Yorker who was like, hey, have you ever thought about writing humor for the New Yorker? And I was like, well, yeah, I've thought about it. <laughs> I just was afraid to like send you my stuff. Um, so for like a year, I was writing stuff and I was pitching it to her and she was declining them very nicely and still reading my stuff. Um, and then this summer, um, that's a real story that I read that happened and I wrote this piece um, really quickly in an afternoon and shot it off to her and it was like yes finally this is the one um, so it was pretty great it was pretty cool yeah <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> do you find that the response like the general response to your work 
Like, what do you think that is? I imagine it being pretty powerful, but. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, I feel like, especially considering the letter to my niece, because I feel like that's probably the most vulnerable thing that I've ever published. Um, that response was really, really warm. Um, I don't think that I saw any sort of like negativity surrounding it. I did get a lot of um, like a lot of random friend requests, which made me <laughs> feel weird. I was like, I don't know any of these people. You know, I'm sharing pictures of like my family on my <laughs> on my wall. So um, I would say with the New Yorker, it was still mostly positive. There were a few folks who um, the response I got was so instead of teaching this woman that how what she did was wrong you decided to like talk about her in the new yorker mm -hmm. um which i mean that happens <laughs> humor is tough and people get misunderstood all the time but uh it was mostly positive yeah that's awesome so i was reading um your piece from the progressive about stopping the cycle of disbelief mm -hmm. how you were writing about you know how white americans are normally in any act of racial or religious violence there's so much disbelief like you can't believe it happened but people of color don't really get that luxury to be in the disbelief and you were talking about how um the night you found out that obama was elected for his first term i was wondering if you could talk about that cycle a little bit and how over the past few years it's influenced your work yeah um i think it's it's feeling more um, obvious to me lately. Like when Obama was elected, I was like a college freshman, you know, it was my first time voting. And um, that experience, I never really talked about it with anyone, like seeing Obama be elected and then going out to celebrate and then seeing folks like literally crying because a black man had been elected president. It was not something that I talked about um, until, I, until I like wrote that piece. Mm -hmm. um, I think this past summer has made it like especially obvious to me. Mm -hmm. um, I'll get like when I, whenever I publish something that is like very explicitly about race, I will get um, some folks who reach out and they're like, "Oh, like that's crazy! Like I didn't know that." Or um, like folks that I grew up with will reach out and be like, "Wow, was Byron really that racist?" And it's like, "Well, I'm not like making these things up." <laughs> It's like, I'm not a fiction writer. Um, but I think that is also probably what keeps me writing, I guess. I feel like the more that I can um, talk about my experiences, what it's like to be a Black woman in this country, the less people can say they don't know that these things exist, hopefully. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially because you were talking about your pieces are so vulnerable when you talk about that. So I think it's incredible that you can get to that level to kind of talk about this stuff. Well, thanks. It definitely wasn't easy. I, that letter to my niece was workshopped a lot, um, actually in Savannah, um, at the Flannery O'Connor Childhood Home. They have like a writing group that used to meet once a month. Mm -hmm. um, it's like open to the public. Um, and you could just go and read your piece and get like automatic feedback. And I will say I definitely workshopped that piece to death. Um, and yeah, it was really vulnerable, but it was nice to have a close group to like workshop it with before it went out to the world. Yeah, I bet. Going off of that, um, how do you find ways to stay motivated and continue to create work on that level, like outside of college? Do you find 
not being able to workshop with professors or maybe you still are in contact with them? Do you have your own community outside? Um, yeah, I would say having your own writing community is like so, so important. Um, I, I was, I was someone that went from graduate, from undergrad straight to graduate school. So when I like graduated from SCAD, it was like, oh, you've been in school for like, uh, 25 years. Like what do you do now? <laughs> right? It's like kind of a big shock. Um, so it took me a minute to say, okay, well, you're not going to get like, a 100 from Professor Locke or like a gold star. So you have to like set those goals yourself, you know? Um, yeah, so I think doing that and like, I don't know, it sounds cheesy, but like writing my goals down makes me feel really good. And like, I love, I love a checklist that yeah. keeps me motivated. Yeah, power of manifestation. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, where do you see yourself in five years, either as a person or as a writer? Um, that's a good question. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Um, I think right now I am really trying to decide if I want to pursue publishing a collection of essays or if I would like to start some sort of publication, um, possibly in Savannah. I've been getting, um, this fall I've gotten some um, some experience with like being an editor of a publication um, and like it's very journalistic you know it's like assigning things to people and like waiting for it to come back and workshopping it and like sending it to the printer but it's really fun you know like I always thought of myself as like a writer but editing is also really dope wow. um, so one of those options I'm gonna make myself choose a path <laughs> and stick wow. with it they um, both been great <laughs> yeah yeah so Keep your fingers crossed to me. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely will. I think there's there would be such a need for both of those. <laughs> yeah, Savannah is like a small town with a lot of publications, but a lot of publications that seem geared to like the same audience. Mm -hmm. um, and just like this this year, there's been a lot of change in the like media scene here in Savannah. Like every publication has a new boss, um, so it's wow. got me thinking. Like, can I start a thing? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll Absolutely. See. <laughs> Absolutely. So the last thing that I want to have you kind of share on is just any advice for students who want to pursue writing or whose dream it is to be published in places like the New Yorker or the Washington Post or McSweeney's. Like what can you share to them? Um, I would say one, like really be selfish with your writing time. Um, like life is busy. We have to work. We have to like take care of our friends and family. Um, but I've gotten into a really, um, what feels like right now, a stable routine of like waking up and doing my writing before like the workday starts mm -hmm. and just having that routine of like knowing that I'm going to get those two to three hours in the morning. Um, I don't know. It just keeps me writing. It keeps my brain like on fresh ideas. Um, and I would also say, read the places that you want to be published in. Um, that's like the easiest way or the best way to get like an understanding of what they're looking for and like the voice and the topics that they publish. Um, yeah, I think that's good advice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so important, especially this year has been so insane. And I think finding a routine and being able to stick to a routine is like the best way to kind of keep your creative levels up and to, yeah. you know, just get things done. 
Yeah. And I feel like for creative people, we are sometimes like that idea of like, oh, this is my art time, you know, like this is my creativity time can feel very like bougie and like (laughs) a little stuck up, but it's true. It's really true. Your brain wants to like show up for the muse, like whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming and sharing your pieces and talking to us today. Thank you. This has been, uh, this has been great. I can't wait to listen to it once it comes out. Um, Yeah, I love staying in touch with SCAD. Um, Being uh, quarantined in Savannah, I feel like I'm missing like everything that's (laughs) happening. Um, So this has been fun. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Elise again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ariel and hearing some of her work. I wanted to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Check back again Friday, February 12th for the fifth episode available on Spotify or at scaddistrict.com. Thanks again.